Welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast on all things related to human resources in veterinary medicine. Join me, Katie Ardeline, and my colleague, Mike Pownell, as we discuss how to support and take care of the people who are instrumental in making your business a success. Great businesses share one common feature. They focus on taking care of their employees. They create businesses where everyone feels empowered and motivated to be the best they can be. These businesses want highly engaged employees and they do whatever it takes to make this happen because they know that highly engaged employees lead to more growth, client loyalty, and profitability. Veterinary medicine is a challenging profession, but it can be made so much easier if we build business cultures that attract and retain the best people. Subscribe to Hire the Smile for great discussions on taking care of the people that make us all better. Hi, and welcome to episode 25 of Hire the Smile. I'm Mike Pannell, and as usual, I'm joined by Katie Arline. Good afternoon, Katie. Hey there, Michael. How are you? Just wonderful. How about you? Not bad. It has been excruciatingly hot where we are, but today it has cooled down, so it is really nice. It is. This is like an ideal summer day for sure. Yeah, right now. But the last couple of weeks, it's just kind of unnaturally hot here. Mm-hmm. So, hey, we're not here to talk about the weather. We're talking about people. So, As always. <laughs> you know, we're always trying to be au courant or current with the news. And there's just been something that has really um, been interesting to me. And where we are in Canada, we're the laggards of the world and opening up our economy after the third wave. So it's really interesting to see what's going on in the rest of the world. And in particular, our neighbors to the south, as they are opening up, because their vaccine rate has been so successful, we're hearing more and more stories of people who own businesses, particularly in the hospitality industry, where they can't hire anybody. Like just mm-hmm. successful restaurants, you know, only have hired 50 to 75% of who they need to hire. And so there's been a lot of discussion about that. And then at the same time, there's a lot of discussions, again, in the United States, but I mean, I think it's a relevant discussion anywhere in the world about minimum wage rates and how that's impacting us. And so, you know, what are living wages? And so we thought, let's talk about the situation. And for me, two questions have come up. The first is, Mm -hmm. is the unwillingness of people going back to work, a lot of the pundits and a lot of people you hear in the news are talking about, well, it's because there's been government subsidies, government help during the pandemic, and people are, you know, they don't need to work if they're getting that. And we had that in Canada last year, between the first and the second wave, we were opening up pretty good. And people were saying, well, you know, restaurants, we can't hire people. And mm-hmm. everybody's saying, well, they're getting government handouts, they need to work. So we want to ask, is this true? Are there mm-hmm. other reasons why people are not returning to old jobs? And then the second question, because everything is interconnected, is what will be the impact of increasing wages in other professions on the bed industry? Mm -hmm. So let's see if we can address question one, Katie. And I know we got a real uh, hodgepodge of articles right here. So we've got like a little novella here of articles. So we do. Yeah. If you're looking for something to do once this comes out, you'll have lots of reading material. That's for sure. Yeah, we're going to have uh, probably the biggest amount of links ever. Yeah. So why don't you kick us off, Katie? For sure. So the first article that we looked at was uh, from the Washington Post. It's an opinion piece called Those $300 Pandemic Checks Aren't the Only Reason That Staff uh, Restaurant Employees Might Not Want to Get Back to Work. So this uh, was a really interesting article. 
because it does talk about how there's a group that did a kind of large scale survey of restaurant staff and just anecdotal surveys of restaurant staff as well. And what they found is that it's not necessarily the money uh, that's keeping people from going back, whether it's uh, they're getting support from the government or they have money from other sources, or they're just sort of somehow getting by with no income. Many people have found other jobs. And, you know, I worked in a restaurant. I wasn't a server. Uh, I was your friendly neighborhood pizza salad person at an East Side Mario's. For those of us in Canada, you might be familiar. And it was a, a terrible job. You know, certain people made money if they were there for a long time. They would make tips. They would be happy. But the amount of crap that you get from the customers, uh, the really the low pay when it comes down to it, I mean, you're never guaranteed here like it is, and I'm sure everywhere else in North America, at least, if you were a server, your actual hourly wage was very low. It could have been like $4 an hour was the actual wage. And then it was sort of like, well, hopefully you get tips. I remember clearly, maybe that was my early HR brain kicking in, but the servers would get staffed either split shifts, which is like the worst thing. You work for lunch from like 1130 to 3.30 and then you have like three hours off and then you might work a few hours in the evening. And maybe it worked for some people, but it wasn't like a really wonderful way to have a schedule or they would just get scheduled for a few hours for dinner. So, you know, a three hour shift at that minimum wage. I mean, how many tips can you realistically pull in in three hours, particularly if you have to uh, reserve some of those tips for tipping out to the, the non-weight staff? So it's a lot. The other thing that I thought was really interesting in this article is they were talking about how these restaurant workers have long memories. I mean, it was only a year ago when they sort of all got turned away and the restaurant owner said, well, we're going to delivery and we don't need you guys anymore. So see you later. So that uh, obviously resonated with them or stayed with them at least. And uh, really in this the survey that came out, 80% said the low pay is their major reason for leaving. And that was a survey, a huge survey of restaurant workers. I mean, I wouldn't want to work in a restaurant just with the way that people are. I mean, there are some wonderful people in the world, but when it's people and it's food and it's picky people, it's just, it can be a really demoralizing place to work. That's for sure. Because I think the other factor of that is too, what people are noticing as the, all through COVID is the wait staff are taking the brunt of people that are coming and going, I don't want to wear a mask. Mm-hmm it seems like customer behavior is just like getting worse and worse. And so you're like, Hey, I'm getting paid minimum wage to have grown up adults berate me and yell at me. That's great. Seriously. And over the last few years, we've been hearing all these stories about temperamental chefs, (laughs) uh, which used to be a badge of honor, but really has come out as just like some really horrible work environment. So I guess, as you said, Mix that in on a horrible work environment, horrible customers, and you're paying me piddling. Yeah, why should I do that? For sure. And really, I mean, when they can get paid, I mean, I don't know what the average would have been, but let's say you were working in a restaurant and your tips and your piddling average wage added up to 18 or $20 an hour. I mean, what's Amazon paying, right? Like you could go to Amazon where you have steady hours, you have benefits, health insurance, that kind of thing, you know, even the factory job to me, sort of when we look at the Amazon wage, and it used to be the Costco wage, but the Amazon wage is sort of like the new minimum wage out there. I mean, when you can go and you can work at Amazon for really a decent hourly wage, why would you want to go back to these jobs where 
you know, unless you have a, a burning passion for service, they're really unforgiving. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Amazon is the new minimum wage because you're sort of looking at it as when you're in a people facing business and as veterinarians, we know this. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to be on your game has to be on. And no matter how you're feeling, you've got to put on the smile. And when you're really doing that, you're doing a tap dance for tips. Or I can just go to Amazon, do my job. It's probably really monotonous and it's hard work. But at the end of the day, I know what I'm getting and it's guaranteed Mm -hmm. and it's not split shifts and it's pretty decent. For sure. Did you find anything in this this answer to this question? Yeah, but I think another one too is I I found this article in the New York Times. This goes back, oh, when was the date on this one? May 11th, so a while back. It really hasn't changed. The title is, Jobless benefits don't make people lazy. Nobel laureate Esther Duflo says. So this is not some pundit on one of the network TVs. This is somebody that has kind of some sense of the economy. And so basically, you know, in a bigger overview of, you know, talking about how the pandemic has affected primarily women in the workforce, she really does talk about all these benefits that the government has given to people, is this really what is keeping people from coming back to work? And really the conclusion is, and they've done some surveys and studies, a lot of academics, and there's basically, they have found that whatever government aid has been given to individuals, basically they have found zero disincentives effect of working. And so, which is zero is a, a, actually a big number in this. And that is mm-hmm. basically they're saying is no matter what the government is doing, that's not why people are not going back to work. And so basically what she's saying is, yes, we need to make a living, but really what people are looking for is meaning in their life. They want to make a difference in their jobs. They want respect in the job that they're doing. So going back to what we were just talking about with the restaurant industry, respect, mm-hmm. those are much more dominant uh, things than financial incentives. And so what their their conclusion is, is that you're not making people lazy by distributing money to them. So I thought that was just like, because I remember reading this like a month and a half ago going, oh, there's finally some research. It's easy to say gut instinct is, oh yeah, people are getting money, they're going to be lazy. Apparently that's not the case. No. And I think too, uh, just to cut in here, I mean, government benefits well, they're a stopgap. It's not like anybody's paying a giant mortgage on a four bedroom house with government benefits. You know, I mean, they're not there to have you live a life of leisure either. So I think it's kind of short sighted when people are like, oh, yeah. people just like the to be on the, the dole. It's like, well, I mean, really, how practical is that? Yeah. So I think what this is telling us is that people would actually like to work, but they want to work in jobs where they have some meaning, that they're respected, hmm. they have some stability. Imagine. I feel bad though, because when you bring up the comment of, you know, people feel a little bit betrayed by the restaurant industry is like, hey, the pandemic's it, you're going. You know, if I was a restaurant owner, you had no choice. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of tough. But I think what it highlighted is it's not a really secure profession. No. And I think people are just like, uh, I, let's do some other things. And, you know, so they've moved on, they're, they're finding other careers. So. Just doing some um, hiring for different clients that we have here and in the U.S. It's interesting the number of resumes that come across that I see that, you know, there was one who was a pastry chef for a lot of years at various different restaurants or other people who are working in that restaurant industry. And they're definitely out there, you know, 
anecdotal, but real world, uh, from my perspective anyway, they're out there and they're looking for what else is out and what else they can do. Right. So I think what's interesting is, so I, I love the line you have that Amazon is the new minimum wage. So Amazon is, you know, 15 to $18 an hour. McDonald's is raising their, what they're paying. There's more and more of those cases that these fast food restaurants, a lot of entry level jobs are saying, you know what, 15 bucks is where we got to be. So let's say that's our new baseline, 15 to 18. So what does that mean for the vet profession? I know in Ontario, what, three, four years ago, Katie, help me out with this. Mm-hmm. Our minimum wage was increased. Mm-hmm. And so people that we were paying above minimum wage, like two or $3 an hour for, let's say, a receptionist at the time, all of a sudden we're going, oh gosh, we now, if minimum wage has been brought up a couple of dollars, that means everybody else's salary goes up a couple of bucks. And then you're thinking, mm-hmm. oh, how am I going to afford that? We're not hiring people in isolation. I remember a few years back, we had a client and she was saying to me, she's like, I am losing employees. And I'm like, why is that? And she's like, well, Toyota is building a plant in the community and they're paying about $10 more an hour. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I ever heard of, you know, or considered it. And this goes way back of like, you know, what goes on in one big industry uh, really has an impact on all of us. So I think in our vet profession, and most of us are, we're dying to get more support staff, veterinarians, anybody right now. So it's not just the Amazon effect. A lot of it is just competition with us because we're all trying to get veterinarian support staff, trained support staff from a very small pool. So how's this going to impact us? We all talk about how you know we should pay more. And I know there's one article, and this sort of goes in, in line with what we read about. I know Dan Pink has this YouTube video we've referenced before of what motivates people. And basically, if there's X amount of money you get to, after that, the benefit of money doesn't pay so much. So this one guy had a business. He, as the owner, was making over a million dollars a year. And with his employees, he had a lot of high turnover, a lot of disgruntled employees, a low employee engagement. And he sort of looked at things and he went, you know, this is not right. You know, we live in an area that has a high standard of living, high cost of living. So basically, he reduced his salary and brought all his staff up to a minimum salary of 70000 so for some people, that was an increase of sometimes twenty to $30,000, like huge jumps. Mm-hmm. And the impact on it is that the business has just grown exponentially. I mean, this is like the poster child of how paying people more benefits your business. And I guess that's sort of the story we want to get into is that there is value in paying people more sometimes. We bring this up because I have seen too often in our profession that a lot of the consultants and a lot of management people and anywhere you read, it's sort of like, well, you know, we got, we got an X percentage of your expenses have to be people and you can't go above that. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, what happens is, is that we start looking at our staff as expenses to sort of whittle down as opposed to looking at them as an asset that adds value to your practice that makes your practice even better. So any thoughts on that before I keep on going? As you can see, I'm stepping up onto my soapbox right now. So I I need to take a few breaths. So I'm not monopolizing everything. And it's interesting, you know, this sort of aligned with my memories of, you know, having educational sessions where we would have folks from all over Canada, the US, and sometimes Europe come and do two or three days of training with us. And, uh, you know, vividly, I remember you and I talking about work-life balance and talking about needing to treat employees better. 
and how veterinarians aren't going to want to be on call like six days a week and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, having these attendees nod their heads, but then once they have a couple of drinks with them later saying, oh, well, these kids don't know how to work these days. And in my day, I did this and this. And it's like, well, that's fine for your day, but it's 30 years later. And I think changing that mindset to understanding the connection between respecting your staff enough for what they contribute to the business to pay them fairly. I think it's, it's something that it can be quite a mind shift for people. And, you know, we've both talked to colleagues of ours in the consulting industry, but also our clients that we have about this topic. And it can be a really hard road to hoe to try and, and get them to sort of change that mindset. Yeah. I remember just looking at one veterinary practice owner Facebook group recently and somebody was, that question is, well, how much should I be paying staff? And I mean, everybody was bringing up these, well, no more than 30%, no more than 40%, no more than 50%. I was just like, is anybody ever questioning these numbers? And it's just like, well, you just, you you can't pay enough. You can't pay, you know. And I remember I was on a call with clients of ours and their accountant and they needed help. That's why they're calling us. And I remember good hospital, do a lot of emergency work. And I remember the accountant saying, well, if we add up all of your staff labor, it's closer to 50%. The ratio should be 40. So you need to reduce your costs of staff by 10%. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting there thinking, going, okay, how are you going to offer emergency service? How are you going to do anything if you take away 10% of your staff? Yeah. So I asked that question. And I was like, how are you going to operate? You tell me right now, do a Sophie's Choice of all your technicians, your LVTs, your associates, the amount of money would be like, you had to get rid of three people. I'm like, which three people can you live without? Mm-hmm. And it was just like, well, we can't live with any. And so like, okay, let's flip it. What happens if you actually grew your business? Let's start talking about investing as people, as assets to grow your business. And how much percentage would you have to increase your revenue to hit this whatever quote unquote magic level? And then it was like, oh yeah, that's another way of looking at it. So that's where I get frustrated at is that everybody goes by this line and I can't go above it. And I think what it trains us as practice owners and managers is that we don't value the people. We're just looking at them as interchangeable cogs. And Mm -hmm. what that does is it gives us mindset of the employees to go, well, I'm not really going to invest in this company because they don't care about me. I'm not going to try any harder because... I know they just look at me as something that's easily replaced. And then you have the vicious circle of the owner saying, just like you were talking about, well, this new staff, they don't want to work hard. Why should I pay them more? They're just slugs. And it's just a vicious, nasty circle. And it's a race to the bottom. Uh, And so how are we going to get great people? How are we going to compete? How are we going to show value if all we're doing is really signaling to our employees that you're only worth X amount and that's it? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not just about money. And you mentioned earlier, there's a threshold sort of where the worry about what you get paid is lessened. Unfortunately, we can't all pay everybody $70,000 a year. I mean, I will give practice owners that much, but pay is still one of the top factors that people look at when they're evaluating potential employers. You need to be at or above the range of your competitors for a a comparable job. You know, we're not saying everybody needs to get paid $100,000 a year. That's definitely not practical. Can't be an excuse. You need to really take a hard look at what other people are paying. And, you know, thankfully here in North America, we do have some relatively decent salary survey information for the industry uh, that's out and about. I mean, you can look at comparable jobs. You know, if you're looking at a, 
a registered vet tech? What's somebody who's comparable in the human medicine realm making? And sort of look at it that way. And also think about like, what's the actual living wage in your area? Mm-hmm. You might sort of be shining your buttons saying, well, I pay $2 above minimum wage. But if the actual living wage amount is $4 above uh, minimum wage, then you really need to look at what you're doing. Looking at, at the actual salary that way is definitely something you need to do. But there are other things that people look for once they're sort of making that wage that they're comfortable with and they feel like they're being compensated appropriately for the inputs that they're giving to the employer. There are some other things that that we can look at. So there's a couple of articles that we came across uh, here. The first one is called What Matters More to Your Workforce Than Money? These next two articles are from our good friend HBR. And really, it's in line with what we've been saying for 24 other episodes. It's culture and values, it's quality of senior leadership, and it's career opportunities. It's culture. It's how you position yourself so that employees say, okay, well, maybe I don't want to be a receptionist for the rest of my life, but is this company giving me other skills or am I building other competencies so that when I move on to my next opportunity, I'm in a really good place to be able to do that because I've been able to sort of do as much as I can with what I have at this job. So I think that that's really important. I mean, culture and values and the quality of senior leadership, we've talked about this ad nauseum about the importance of these things. So I think that uh, it's really interesting article to sort of solidify that, you know, obviously doing, they've done some studies and there there are numbers that you can read, we'll link to the articles, but it's not just pay, it's the culture side of things as well. I think the flip side of this, Thinking of uh, a business I know, I don't think you know them, where they pay quite well, but there are some volatile personalities, uh, which is short firm, scream, yell, abusive, just terrible, terrible behavior. And their attitude was, well, we pay them a lot, so they should put up with it. And Mm. I'm thinking, well, mm, the sort of the flip side of, of it is that if you've got a horrible work environment, I don't know how much you can pay somebody to stick around. And I don't think you're going to get the best out of them anyhow. It's sort of like you're charging yourself a tax for your poor behavior. So I think culture goes both ways. Yeah. I mean, if people are cringing, <laughs> it's not a good thing. And that, well, I'll we'll just pay them more to make them. I mean, like we've been saying at a certain point, the money doesn't matter no matter what position you're in. If you're getting abused, you're having to wonder what's walking in the door that day. There can sometimes be no money that's worth your mental health in those situations for sure. Absolutely. So the other interesting thing here in the same vein, uh, you know, talking about what employees are looking for now, but with COVID and with the switch to working from home and really just changing how we look at employment and how people have, have been forced to work at home. And obviously in the veterinary industry, it hasn't been as prevalent. I mean, it's not like people are bringing their dogs to the vet's house, thankfully. Uh, but I think the concept is still there of conceiving other ways to do the business you need to do that isn't nine to five, Monday to Friday, everybody has to be here. So I think that's really important thing to look at too. So the second article that we looked at in this vein was what your future employees want most by Tim Minahan, again, in HBR. Uh, And so this information is from a survey that Citrix did. And Citrix is uh, like a big uh, company that does HR consulting, they do HR management systems, uh, really big. So they have lots of people to answer surveys for them. So they had this study that they did called the Talent Accelerator. 
And it basically looked at what is going to be most important to future employees. And the big number one thing was flexible options. So that's flexible work hours, flexible locations. And interestingly, uh, you know, I think traditionally people sort of thought, well, if I want to get, I definitely, I mean, for my husband in the accounting industry, if you want to get paid a lot, you have to work in Toronto, basically, at the end of the day. If you want to work, uh, have a better lifestyle, or you don't want to live in the city, you want a slower lifestyle, you want to pay less for a house, you're going to get less of a wage. And that attitude is sort of changing to, okay, well, I can do the same work. I don't necessarily need to be at the office on Bay Street in Toronto. I can do this from the country where houses are less expensive right. or where I have a couple of acres and, you know, my kids can have a better lifestyle growing up. So I think that that's something really, uh, really important to think about. And I think too, for vet practices, thinking about, okay, well, this, this could be a good thing for us because there's more opportunities for us to expand and to grow into these areas that maybe had been under service before, but now they have an influx of people who have the income to be able to afford uh, higher end vet services. So I think that there's sort of a parallel there. And I think that's kind of interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we could have a lot of flexibility. I think mm -hmm. it's a no-brainer. And it's not just work from home. It's just, you know, I want to work weekends. I want to work part-time. I, I think we just need to be flexible. I, I don't have anything else to add to it. I think it just sort of stands on its own. Yeah. Uh, the other two things that they talked about was rethinking also about how productivity is measured. You know, I mean, traditionally, it was like, well, if you're in, at your desk from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., then you are X amount productive. But the shift is kind of moving from that uh, to, did you get the job done? And does it really matter, you know, how much time you spent doing it? Having managers be much less, I, I could see this making it so that managers are much less sort of taskmasters and making sure that your hours are booked so every single moment can be accounted for to, did the job get done? Did the project get done? How well did your diverse team get the the objective done. So I think that that's really interesting as well. And again, honestly, it's not like you can have a receptionist who <laughs> have have all the clients come client calls come in within two hours, or maybe you could have all the client calls come in within two hours and then, you know, go home. But if there's other work or administrative work, or kind of think about how you can reallocate that work. Maybe there's one receptionist that works in the office that day and just answers the phone and one works from home and does uh, the administrative side of things. So just sort mm -hmm. of thinking about the distribution of work, I think would be something that would be relevant for the vet industry here. I, yeah, I thought this was interesting because I look at it on several levels. I think it's on the, the vet production and we've talked before mm -hmm. about, you know, having a vet on salary versus on commission, because when you're on commission, you're just focused on, I got to bring up a dollar value. That's how I get paid. But are you, incentivize then to worry about how well you get along with your teammates, how well you do aftercare for these clients. You become very transactional, whereas you say to that, okay, you're going to be on salary. Just make sure you do the best damn medicine possible. Be good to your teammates. Uh, do follow up, encourage new vets that we have, mentor them, train them. It helps the output of the job is, you know, much happier clients, uh, more successful practice versus one person getting a reward. And, and I also, as you, you talked about, it's sometimes hard with the, you know, an hourly worker, like let's say a kennel cleaner, like a kennel cleaner to be sort of like, oh, you can work from home today. Well, that's obviously not going to yeah. happen. But I also think that as again, as practice owners, and I think this is more of a generational thing, we hate idleness. And mm. so, you know, as you're coming through the practice and you see somebody just sitting there or 
maybe in the break room a bit longer. We see this. I've been guilty of it. Why aren't they doing something? Get, yeah. get out there, do something. And you know what? Sometimes maybe they just crushed something they just did. They did an amazing job, or did, they did an extra special work cleaning up out of the kennels or adding another layer of doing all the blankets and, and bedding cleaner. And they're just taking a moment to just ah, take a breath before you go on to the next thing. But if we're just nagging at them all the time, that's like, eh, why bother? Yeah, that's definitely a good point. And I think the third thing here they talked about, which I think is a huge challenge for more so large animal equine veterinary practice. I think small animal is making more strides in this direction, but having more diverse teams. So having, and whether, I mean, that's different colors of skin or it's different backgrounds or it's different ways of doing things. I think that this is a really interesting thing. And maybe this is something that's been holding vet medicine back is sort of that, well, the doctor has to look like this and they have to speak like this and the end, the population mm -hmm. of the clients are changing, you know, so rapidly as well. Absolutely. Just thinking beyond, okay, well, and I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this is, you know, I look at a resume and if there are spelling errors on it, I'm usually pretty unforgiving, but thinking, okay, well, is a spelling really important or, you know, why don't I talk to this person and see what they're about? You know, maybe English isn't their first language and Aside from spelling the name of the business wrong, uh, I've definitely <laughs> been more, uh, I mean, that's on a website, come on now. Uh, but I think I've been more forgiving about that lately. And I have been pleasantly surprised by some folks that we've been able to hire at, at various practices who I might have uh, not have had as much patience for before, just from Absolutely. the spelling, not for any other reason. So definitely something interesting. 100%. You know, hybrid vigor. The more diverse we are, the stronger we are as a team. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, when we discussed the value of paying our staff more and all the reading we did, the, the one article that surprised me the most, I actually, I overheard this in a podcast and we'll put this podcast in the notes, but I was like, is this true? Like you hear things people talking about mm -hmm. and you're like, is this real? I was a detective and I sourced it out. And so here's the article, how poverty changes your mindset. It comes from Chicago Booth Review. That's a business school at the University of Chicago, which I will say as an aside, is probably the classic conservative economic business school. Like yep. the, the Chicago School of Economics, those four words says a lot to anybody that knows the field. Like this is as conservative as can be. What they found out in short is poverty decreases the capacity, the mindset by 13 IQ points. Hmm. And really where it comes down to is that the person is so focused on how they're going to survive, mm -hmm. how they're going to pay their rent, how they're going to pay the kids uh, clothing, whatever. It is so exhausting that it actually makes people dumber. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's just how you do it. And they've also found the similar thing with anybody who's underneath a lot of financial stress. So you could be wealthy and underneath peak financial stress, and you just start making bad decisions because mm -hmm. you just don't have that support. So, you know, I, I thought of that and I said, wow, okay, let's bring this into the veterinary field. And I've been in practices or I've known practices where they pay piddly's amount. Like, I mean, going back to what I said earlier is that vicious cycle of you pay people crap and they do crap work. That justifies you that you should pay them crap because they're just doing crap work. Yeah. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, yes, so yes, these people are 
doing really bad work because their attention is focused on other things like, do I have enough gas to get home? And if I don't have enough gas, how am I going to get home? As opposed to, am I holding this dog correctly? Am I clipping the nails correctly? Whatever, whatever. So I was like, wow, that really, you know, going back to what we we're talking about, you know, salary is important. But so I think if we're paying them too poorly, we're just not getting good work out of them. We're mm-hmm. just not. Despite their best efforts, for sure. At despite, I mean, they want to do the best job, but again, when you're poor, you can't. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I say is, okay, how do we treat them as an asset and not just an expense? How do we value people? So all the things that you discussed, both the culture, the uh, diversity, the flexibility, making sure you're paying them a competitive wage. And then I can hear some people going, I can't afford to pay people more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is going to be harsh. And then I'm going to sort of do the flip side of it. And I'm like, if your business model, and I'm thinking of Uber or Lyft or some fast food restaurants, is only successful if you can only pay people poorly, you don't have a good business. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in the pandemic, this is the stuff that's coming out is using people as cheap labor to make a living is, I think you got to rethink it. So, whether it's you've got to raise your fees appropriately and there's not a better time to raise our fees as veterinarians when the demand is so darn high. Yep. I'm not saying you gouge people, but you kind of sort of let them go, okay, my labor is, this, is your biggest expense by far in every vet practice. And if I need to bring them up to this living wage that you're talking about, that's going to increase my cost by five, six, 10%, whatever it is. You got to raise your prices by that. That's one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying, well, I got to keep the prices of my people low because uh, I got to keep my prices the way they are, you're really then signaling to your staff that I really don't care about you. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you're going to get what you, you, know, you deserve as a business owner. So that's the harsh part of it. But I think the reality is, is that we can charge more. Mm-hmm. But I also think this goes back to my little diatribe about these artificial levels of what our, you know, our expenses should be. I was working for a client once, big group practice. One of the owners were there and we we're talking about increasing profitability because it is nice to be profit. You're a business owner. You've invested a lot of time, money, energy. You want to return on your investment. I'm a business owner. I get that. The question she brought up is, what if we were less profitable and yet we had happier staff and it was much more enjoyable to come to work every day and we weren't replacing staff every couple of months because somebody else offered them a higher job. And it was one of those moments where you're like, oh, that's such an obvious, simple answer. And yet, what a good, smart answer. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we make a good living. And so if I'm making 2% less a year and I enjoy coming to work, it's important for me as a business owner to enjoy coming to work. And if I have the same people year after year, I'm more efficient. I can do more. If we're not having to pay to replace to the time we spend I know you could talk forever about the cost of hiring new people. Mm -hmm. Hiring, training, lost productivity. Yeah. The loss of institutional knowledge when people leave efficiency. It's huge. Yeah. And and so if you sit there and go, I mean, there's one study that we quote in one of our presentations. And so if you have a a position that requires a high level of education, veterinarian, let's say, the cost to replace them is could be up to 100 to 150% of their annual salary mm-hmm. to replace them. Maybe somebody uh, with less intense education, maybe an entry-level worker at your practice is up to 70% of their annual wage. If you look at that and you go, okay, who quit our practice in the past year for whatever reason? 
and you say, okay, we had two people that were making uh, 30,000 a year each. So that's 60,000 total. So 70% of that I'm ballparking that is like 40, 42,000. You're like, wow, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I use that $40,000 that we lost and pay them more, spread it around to every people, maybe people would hang around a bit longer and, you know, yeah, we're paying more, but we're making more money. And I think that's what the mindset we as business owners have to realize is if you're investing into these people as an asset, your business will do better and it'll offset whatever pay increase you have to give. Yeah. And I think, you know, this kind of popped to the surface in my mind too is, you know, you were talking about the example of a practice owner sitting down with their accountant and going through the books. And I think this really underlines the necessity of getting yourself a little more business education about how to read your numbers and see what's really going on and understand how you can influence your various costs, you know, because you look mm-hmm. at labor and it's like, well, out of everything on a balance sheet, I, I understand what like labor is what I pay people to work here. And that's an easy thing to manipulate because it's simple. Whereas messing with your cost to get sold or, you know, getting other efficiencies in there, it takes a lot more understanding and a lot more work. So I think this is another one of those uh, areas where it pays to be able to take a little more interest in the business side of of veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more on that. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, you know, another thing is like, I know a lot of us overbuild our practices and by that we just have a lot of flash, you know, so we have Mm -hmm. curbside appeal. Yeah. And so we pay a lot higher rents. And so then you're looking at it and go, okay, what's, what's really driving sales? If I maybe had a smaller facility or I didn't have such a manicured garden in the front of my practice, am I really going to lose work? As opposed to if I pay my staff 2% more, I'm paying less in rent, I'm paying more in labor. It balances out. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to your point, if you really understand your income statement, understand your expenses, then you can look at it. Well, how do I make a, a good argument? What would it take for me to pay my people more? And you'll find it there. Mm-hmm. All right. Handle that one. I'm now walking off my soapbox. Oh, wow. That's a good one. <laughs> good <Wow>. rant. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. It is a rant. Well, you know, I think why we rant is is because we have, we've been worked with too many practices that push back. And when we finally convince them to pay uh, people more, invest in the people, it gives them a mindset to look at their business every single time their business has improved and they improve their profitability. Mm-hmm. So it works. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Wins or fails. Uh, so this week I have a, a fail win, a kind of like a, why does it have to be this way, but it's a win and then a, an actual win. So my fail win is an article that's in the globe and mail here, uh, Ontario newspaper here in Canada and basically, uh, there's this company called Nixware, and they do uh, undergarments, basically. They do all e-commerce, and their mission is basically to be anti-Victoria's Secret. So they actually have real people, you know, they design their products for people who aren't size zero. Their CEO is a lady. They're Toronto-based as well. So... Nix has been around, I think, for almost 10 years now uh, as this e-commerce uh, entity. And the CEO wanted to expand things. So she wants to open brick and mortar stores. She wants to have more offerings. So basically, she was going to venture capitalists and other investment places to raise the money. So 
that's all good stuff. Uh, her one caveat was uh, she was very pregnant at the time that this happened. And she said, anybody who questioned her commitment to her business because she was pregnant, she would not entertain anything from them. Even if they had, you know, they were willing to put the most money in or they had the highest offer or whatever the case may be, she was not going to talk to them if they questioned. Uh, and I think this really reflects the bias in the industry, uh, in industry in general and in business, uh, systemic bias amongst venture capitalists, you know, questioning the dedication to a business if you want to have kids. I mean, obviously, that's going to be a, a female question. You know, you don't question men like, well, how many kids are you and your wife planning to have? That would never get asked. At the end of the day, I mean, she was able to raise $53 million. And apparently there were three or four investors that were not obviously not named that were dismissed out of hand because they did question her commitment because she's pregnant. So uh, I thought it was interesting. And this is one of those, the real uh, illustrations of a company that is following their mission and they're not going against their mission. You know, their mission is, quote, to empower everyone to live unapologetically free, free from judgment and self-doubt and free to be yourself. And this is exactly in line with that mission. So a fail, I think, because of the, the sort of systemic bias that exists, but a win in the end. I'm just going to say to everybody, I didn't hear what this fail was going to be, but as you're saying it, it reminded me something. As you know, I have an equine practice. We have a veterinarian who is, she's due in like six weeks. Mm -hmm. So she is, she is pregnant. And there's a picture that she posted of how she is positioning herself to do equine dentistry. And I looked at it and I was like, that's the most badass picture I yeah. have seen of a vet <laughs> ever in my life any gender, any species. I mean, I just looked at her and I was like, I bow down to your dedication, to your clients, your coworkers. I was like, that was just boss. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. Yeah. So. so then my actual win, and as soon as I saw this article, I was like, oh, Mike's going to love this. So this is actually from uh, late May. It's an article in the CBC. And basically here in southern ontario canada in the toronto area there are pockets of toronto that had extremely high covid caseloads and really driving the overall case numbers here in ontario you know it was uh, people who lived in high rise uh, apartment buildings people who might not have english as a first language so sort of uh, or had mistrust of public health and really essential workers who couldn't stay home, I think is the huge one as well. So basically, you know, there were delays in getting vaccines here in Canada, because we don't manufacture vaccines here. And once the vaccine started coming, it was like, okay, well, how can we vaccinate, particularly in these areas, how can we vaccinate the, the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time? And so the article's name is Made in Canada Solution, Hockey Hub Vaccine mm -hmm. Clinics are getting the job done faster. And perhaps you saw this and I, I could probably picture you saying, oh, I like this. Um, but basically what they did is instead of having appointments 15 minutes apart where one person comes in, they fill out their paperwork, the pharmacist, uh, you know, takes their paperwork, make sure it's filled out. And then they wait somewhere else and they get their shot and then they wait somewhere else for the requisite 15 minutes before they leave. What they did is set up these giant spaces. So hockey arenas or giant community centers with all of these chairs and they would let people in and they sit in these socially distanced chairs 
And basically they have one, uh, a person or people who are dedicated to getting the paperwork done. They come down the rows and get all the paperwork done. And then the vaccinators come down the rows and they just vaccinate people one after the other, like boom, boom, boom. Wonderful. So yeah, so it was real efficiency, sort of lean thinking and just thinking about how to do things differently. And basically in a 10 hour clinic with five people doing the vaccinating, they're able to vaccinate 4,500 people a day. So that's 70 to 90 wow. shots per hour per vaccinator, whereas traditionally it'd be more like six to 10 people per hour. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, and I thought a really unique way. And I, I love that it was like, okay, well, how can we do this differently? So it's more efficient. And healthcare is an, is sometimes really innovative and sometimes it's not really innovative. And we see that in the veterinary industry as well. Uh, but I thought it was just uh, a really interesting uh, innovation that came out of this. Cool. Well, I don't know if my wins as good as this one, but I'll start with my fail. So as I was thinking about, you know, knowing we were going to record today, I was thinking of this yesterday and this article popped up of a famous uh, U.S.-based equestrian who was arrested for basically having a relationship with a 17-year-old student of his. Charming, yep. Yeah, that wasn't the first word that came to my mind. It's easy to get numb to just the bad news every single day. This is my bad news, but I'll pair it with the good news on the same subject. I was just like, really? I mean, this guy, I think, is in his 50s. Mm-hmm. And you know, on so many levels, this is just wrong. You know, student, instructor, age, uh, just wrong, 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 wrong. But the good news of it is I'm fortunate. I'm on a committee of Equestrian Canada, which is the national sport body for equestrian sports in Canada. And they're asking all members of the board and committees, uh, coaches, all those people to write an online test which goes over their guidelines for abuse, bullying, discrimination, what have you. And I really uh, appreciated that the effort that they're putting in to uh, instruct all members, instruct the people who are in senior positions, who the policymakers. Mm-hmm. I liked it because I remember I was talking to a colleague who is, has a, another position with it, and we were talking about Oh, yet another incident of bad judgment by somebody who should know better. Mm -hmm. And they basically quoted a line from that same test that I did. And I was like, good. We're reducing the barriers. We're reducing the ability to people to just sort of like, "Uh, I don't want to get anybody into trouble or Mm -hmm. it's not my business or whatever the usual excuses are. So I commend Equestrian Canada for putting forth that initiative. And I'm sure it's, it's all through all sport bodies in, in Canada. And yeah. not just the one I, I saw, but I'm like, good, because this kind of crap can't carry on anymore. Yeah. And I know in the States, they have safe sport, which is exactly the same thing and that it's been going yeah. on. And, uh, you know, just looking at uh, one of the horse bulletin boards online that I frequent, the amount of people who are apologists for well-known uh, you know, you know, the legends in the horse training world, it's really turns your stomach or they say, mm-hmm. well, it was 20 years ago. It's like, well, what if I killed somebody 20 years ago, I'm still a murderer. So it just, yeah. uh, it, it just really shows the need for it. And I'm glad that there is a mechanism for reporting and for dealing with these issues and making sure that people understand what the standards are, which is kind of revolting that needs to happen at all. But uh, you know, accountability. Okay, we're going to lay out what the parameters are. So that's a great one, Mike. Good. Well, 
this was a good rant one. This might be our longest podcast, and ranty. which means you're going to get the most amount of articles to peruse afterwards. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, everybody. See ya. Thank you for listening to Hire the Smile, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Our goal at Oculus is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success. This episode was produced and edited by Heather McPherson. Special thanks to Alyssa Rubenstein for doing the amazing marketing that she does for Oculus. You can see what we are up to by checking us out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and our website, oculusinsights.net. If you think you could use a business advisor or performance coach, go to advicebyoculus.com. See you next time.